Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Andrew times two. We do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. It's a Tuesday. That means we move into our across the pond version with Andrew times two on this Tuesday. So yesterday, Trent Thorne joins us from Australia, you somehow feel left out of the equation, so you go recruit another Andrew to come and help today? Absolutely. Good morning, USA, and welcome, <laughs> Andrew Meredith. Thank you very much. editor of a balanced, even, unbiased <laughs> newspaper in the UK. Deputy business editor. Mustn't Dep- get ahead of myself. Deputy, do you have a star for that, Andrew? This Absolutely. Week? Well, half a star, yeah. yeah half a star. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> do you know the name of the paper, Andrew? Anderson? It's called the Farmers Weekly, yes. All right. Well, I just okay. want to make sure you had your act together this yep. week. They, they've, they've got these big adverts for Piedmontese um, beef from Nebraska in there now. Absolutely, yeah. Keep them that's flowing across good. the Atlantic. Yeah, that's all good. <laughs> okay. So oh, it's not we, we thought, bad, I, I thought it was time that with all the rubbish that you're getting told by the media at the moment, it's better to have real stories talked about from the UK. So I'm going to put Andrew on the, um, on the, on the, on the backstop here. Come on. Tell us from the pitcher's mound what is hitting farmers in the UK right at this moment. Well, first of all, it's an honour to be here on the momentous US election day. I feel like I'm the only journalist left in the country. Everybody <laughs> seems to be decamped to America. They're spread out. They're in Arizona. They're in Pennsylvania. They're in Washington. They're in Florida. There's there's no one left in London of the, the fine journalistic community. The pubs are run dry. And uh, that's just as well because everything will be closing down on Thursday. We've got the uh, latest coronavirus lockdown restrictions in England in particular. Uh, uh, regular observers of UK coronavirus response politics will have noticed that the, the uh, response has been different across the different nations, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. But in England, we're going back into lockdown two on Thursday. And that obviously has implications for farming, just as it did in the spring. And I think the important question, which a lot of people are wondering, is what will that mean to dairy farmers or for dairy farmers? We In spring, we saw... Um, some milk being tipped away, but you know, a, a modest amount compared to you know total production. But nevertheless, prices were hit hard, and some milk had to be tipped away after the closure of coffee shops and uh, other catering businesses. A lot more was sold through supermarkets, but it wasn't quite enough to make up the total demand. So, you know, we're going to have to wait and see in the next few weeks. Farmers will be nervous about what happens to their their milk prices in the weeks and months ahead, depending on how long this lockdown lasts. But there is a lot of hope now. Uh, you know, supply lines have been rejigged. And crucially, we're not in that spring flush. A lot of the UK herd, dairy herd calves in the spring. The biggest amount of milk production is in the spring. So we're not at that place yet. Although if we get round to January and we're still in lockdown, I think people will start to worry about that happening again. So that's where we are. Big questions for the dairy industry, big questions for the whole of the UK uh, farming network, uh, all eyes on, on prices once again. What, what exactly is a lockdown, Andrew? So we, from Thursday, will uh, not be allowed to 
mix either inside the home or outside the home. Uh, restaurants and pubs will be closed. There will basically be only um, travel for work, essential work that can't be done in the home. Uh, those are the sort of the headlines, aren't they, Andrew H? Uh, what are the big changes? Yeah, yeah you've got everything right except the one. There's one anonymously, anonymously, anonymously. Sorry, that's a Joe Biden moment. I'm going to have a few of them today. Um, one anom- <laughs> anomaly was um, was uh, that you are allowed to keep your pub open provided you provide a full square meal. That's right. Yes. So because the virus, the virus doesn't obviously yeah. track yeah, the- person to person if you're having a meal. Oh. Yeah. So didn't you get the memo that all of this is supposed to be over after the election? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing is that, and just to put to the, you know, we're we are a um, a devolved government. We have a government in Wales, government in 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 Scotland, and a sort of a government in Northern Ireland. Although they don't sit from years for years at a time. so it, what's happening here is just that it's apparently Wales is closing its border, right, to England that's on, it's going to be in full lockdown. So nobody's supposed to go out anyway. So anyway, just, you know, make up your own mind on what you think about that. But we're yet to find out what um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon is going to do in Scotland because she's in charge of Scotland at the moment. She does a daily briefing on how she's coping with coronavirus in Scotland. She's actually blamed already blamed the second wave on the English, which is really, really helpful. And um, apart from the fact that it's all over Europe, but for some reason she thinks the English are actually at fault for causing a second wave in Scotland. But the rumour is that we're going a lockdown for four weeks. Now, Nicola, we have a, as Andrew will tell you, at the moment we have a three-stage lockdown, well, sort of three, three-tiered approach to it, sort of high, very high and extremely high. That's how they, because they want to keep the fear going. Um, and so in Scotland, they have five tiers. <laughs> and so we're expecting Scotland to announce that. Look, at Trent is really confused here. I, well, I've never I, seen I, this. And I Scotland, mean, the data, Andrew, the data has shared that lockdowns don't work, make it worse. And yet people just ignore that and continue to plow ahead. I, listen, I'm, not just, I'm just telling you what's happening. So Nigel Farage, who started the Brexit party, as you know, yesterday, he's now formed a new party called what, what's he called it andrew do you remember it's called uh, the is it? reform party reform or renew or something yeah. yeah the reform party because he is going to be because all leading their uh, political parties in the uk are all for lockdown he's going to be the antichrist here and he's gonna he's gonna go and do the opposite and i think he's gonna get a lot of support especially as time goes on um but scotland just let me come back to scotland because i've got some breaking news for you there we've locked down for four weeks so that in the way that Andrew has just described, we believe that um, uh, if she gets the money from our exchequer, because she, she'll want furlough money for the Scottish workers, we believe that she's going to lock down for four weeks, one day, three hours and 22 seconds. OK, just what? 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 Why do you say that? Because it has to be at least one day different to what England does to make it news in Scotland. <laughs> Hey, competition's good in all things, right? Even politics. Yeah, but there you go. But one thing I will say is, though, against you, Trent, is yesterday we had another Trent on who did yeah. make me think they actually closed their whole country down in Australia, as you know. I know there's only 22 million people or whatever we... 24. 24 million. Yeah. 
But they closed the whole country down and closed all their airports. Right. And they haven't got any. It's gone. So be careful. At the moment, it's not there. I'm assuming it will come back when we open the airports, but it's not there. Yeah, it will. Because if you don't understand the virus, you're in trouble. And this is just plain virus management 101. You can be isolated as long as you want to until you develop herd immunity. There is no way around that. You're going to have an issue. So, yes, Australia is going to be free of a virus until they once again open the borders. And they cannot go without opening the borders. And then the people are going to be sitting there waiting to get the virus. But what happens if in the meantime we get um, a, 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 a vaccine for it then? Wouldn't they be right in those circumstances? No. Why not? I I do not see, number one, a vaccine quick enough to uh, subset the the economic situation to need the need for opening Australia. Secondly, are you going to mandate the vaccine? I'm not taking the vaccine. So how many people are going to actually say I'm not taking the vaccine? I'm just asking you the question. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I, it, and the other thing is Andrew Andrew Meredith on on that side. It, I, I see because I did do a little bit of homework this morning. I see, we have an outbreak of Asian flu in birds in Cheshire. Is that is that been confirmed? Yes, there's been there's been a couple of outbreaks uh, in in wild birds. I haven't been working on that story, so I'm a little bit off the ball with that one. Ooh. Excuse me while I check in on with a colleague on the the latest details. Uh, I'm given to understand that that flock is going to be destroyed today. Well, uh, talk amongst yeah. yourselves. A- a- Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Meredith, you may want to put Andrew yeah. Henderson on the news staff yeah. here because it seems as though he's on top of this. I do have a reason to talk, and Andrew brought it up. Certified Piedmontese is the opportunity to get closer to the consumer's food dollar the genetics may originate from Italy, but Lone Creek Cattle Company in good old Nebraska have modified these and we will, what we call them, Americanize them. That means that they calve easy, they grow well, the health standards are typical, and then when you come at weaning time, you wean those calves, you keep them on a feed for about six weeks and then ship them off to Lone Creek Cattle Company. $180 over market price, steers and heifers, the same price. The certified Piedmontese system is a real opportunity pushing towards 50,000 head a year in this niche program. If that's something that you're interested in, particularly if you're a Great Plains cattleman, get details on the web, LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Second leg of the journey, Election Day 2020 with Andrew times two after this. Welcome back to Rural Route, Trent Lewis, alongside rule breaker Andrew Henderson. No matter how many months, how many weeks in a row he does this, he continues to break the ultimate rule, talking about the topic during the break. Andrew Meredith, by the way, with Farmers Weekly, he just said they're waiting to be spoken to before he speaks. They gave good. <laughs> we all were. Somehow we went astray, Henderson. Let's go back to what you missed then, folks. Andrew, was I correct with my story? So, yes, there's, <laughs> there's been uh, reports of um, in Europe of, of avian flu of various strains circulating among wild birds now for a week or two. But uh, yesterday in Kent and uh, also in Cheshire, avian influenza was found in commercial flocks. 
Uh, and you're absolutely right, at a premises in Cheshire, 13,000 broiler chickens are going to be culled to limit the spread of this disease today, and an exclusion zone of, uh, has been placed around that to uh, enhance measures then to see if it's, it's spreading at all. But um, the, uh, the two strains, the two outbreaks in, in Cheshire and Kent are two different strains, and I think work is underway Ooh. to discover how infectious they are and what impact in total that's going to have sort of on, on commercial poultry production in the UK. It's very early days yet, and I think it's too early to draw many conclusions about these outbreaks yet. Mm. And so ultimately the initial spread of that would come from a migratory fowl, correct? Yes, and, you know, British farmers liked it. Uh, US farms, I'm sure, most of uh, commercial poultry production is indoors in very mm. biosecure units. We do have a lot of... Uh, sort of semi-free range egg production uh, with birds going in and out of shed but broilers not so much the meat production birds more indoors and when there is a threat about a threat to their health even the sort of outdoor birds can mostly be, be kept indoors so i'd imagine you know, people will be, be reviewing protocols today and seeing if they need to sort of keep those flocks indoors away from any other wild birds and it'd be a nice time to remind all folks and and the uk consumer is the worst abuser of this. Tell me I'm wrong if you like. But uh, understanding why birds or all food animals are kept inside, why we put them inside to begin with, it was to protect the health and well-being of these animals to minimize stress from predators, weather, and disease. And yet I forwarded Andrew Henderson an article today about somebody who just doesn't understand the concept of humans managing these food animals in a way that protects them at the best level. We started putting birds in the United States inside facilities in the 50s because we determined it was best for the bird. And and here's another case in point of why we are protecting food animals by putting them in a barn. Um, can I reply to Diane Sullivan, or would you like to reply to Diane Sullivan, uh, uh, Andrew? Oh, only if you read it. Well, she saw the biggest spike in food costs in 50 years. How is the UK faring in that regard? Well, I wish we were faring as well as you by the sounds of it, because it should be more expensive. Andrew? Yeah, the UK, uh, you know, globally uh, is, uh, I think, third, the third cheapest food after the US, and I believe Singapore. No. Is it uh, Andrew? There's an Asian I don't know about uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. the cheapest in Europe. Yeah, we certainly have, I think, the third cheapest food globally. And I don't think coronavirus has significantly affected the, the cost of uh, food on the shelf to the British consumer. In fact, um, because there is now, we are developing into a broader sort of recession or economic downturn, mostly because of the coronavirus. It has spurred our supermarkets into another round of uh, retail cost cutting. Um, And you'll be familiar, you know, once one or two do that, I think a lot of the other chains feel pressure to jump on board. And there's certainly been a lot of advertising activity from the big retailers in the last month, sort of um, proclaiming how they're certainly essential goods. The basic goods have got even cheaper. uh, And of course, they... I've got to find that extra money from somewhere. Are they going to take it out of their own profit margin or are they going to try and pass on those reductions back up the well, down the food chain, up the food chain to the farmer? I'm sure many farmers here will have experienced uh, the price reductions, uh, the pressure from retailers if they're in, you know, selling commercially to 
cut their margins to the bone rather than see the supermarkets bear the brunt of it. Can I just so, just quickly to Diana? I, listen, if you've got 40 million Americans are struggling to feed themselves, then I wasn't trying to belittle that. What I would say is, though, that I believe for far too long, the proportion that people spend on eating nutritious, good food is far too low. Um, if that's cool, if you're if what you're saying is true, that's a different argument because everybody should be able to fit, have enough money to, to be able to eat and and drink. But that you know, I'm just saying, as far as I'm concerned, food has been too, too cheap for too long. So uh, Diane will be our guest tomorrow on Roll Route. She's a regular <laughs> contributor. She's from Boston, um, and she has been be fighting there. for uh, food equality and uh, humanity for quite some time. Uh, we don't agree on SNAP, which is our food welfare system. And I don't want to get into that now because we're going to do that tomorrow. And you're welcome to tune in, both of you. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, we're, we're going to see, even though we had a huge spike in food prices in April and, and the bottleneck caused awareness like we had never seen before, I predict that as 2020 closes, the percent of food spent on uh, by the U.S. consumer will still be the most economical in the world, and I don't think that's changed. What will change is that coming into 2020, the U.S. consumer would spend about 8% of their disposable income on food and 17% on entertainment. Mm, that's the that, bit that worries me. That will not be the case in 2020 when the, when the curtain falls on the year because entertainment expenditures have greatly plummeted. There is, I mean, it's a a different level of entertainment period. I don't feel qualified to contribute to the debate in the, in the U S on this topic, but I can tell you that it's definitely still a live debate here in the UK as well. Um, a discussion over do, where does the, where are the limits of the state? How yeah. much should the state intervene with feeding, uh, feeding children and adults? Uh, we have uh, one of our most famous footballers, Marcus Rashford has been spearheading a campaign to get the government to uh, pay for um, a school ch- school children school who meals would have been, out of school, Free yeah, school who would have been eligible in school, school to have them in holidays yeah. too. Um, There's a very very live debate here, um, and I suppose if there there are sort of strong voices on either side, but often I think even but, when uh, Parents have made mistakes and could have done better by their children. I think the main thing to remember is that it's never the children's fault. And, you know, what we can do to help them is, is and what Diane is going to help them, it sounds like, is, is very applaudable. And the army of volunteers here in the UK, too, that will be working this Christmas to feed hungry minds is absolutely tremendous. Yeah, Diane, but, can you just tell Diane milk is cheaper in the UK than it is in the US? I can see that. That's oh, okay. Really- but even at three dollars and fifty cents a gallon, mm-hmm. if you think that's expensive, get a cow. You'll find out that milk at three fifty. Uh, you're you're going to try to do the math and say, how's the farmer make this work? Because well, the matter is, it's not ask, free when you have question, your own cow. The easiest question is to ask Diane how much a gallon of Coke is. Let her do the maths. Yeah, because that's the problem. Personally, no, this problem. this debate, I think we can all agree this debate probably transcends agriculture, and it's more about you know uh, poverty as a, as a broader concept. Why are incomes so low in comparison to the cost of living, for example? Yeah, and there's many answers to that. And I don't, 
you know, that farmers are only one segment of this as, as the food producers. Right. But one thing, Andrew, that I don't have a lot of time for is somebody who uh, acquires wealth through entertaining, i.e. a footballer, and then telling the general public that somebody should get a free something or another from the government when, in fact, government doesn't have the money. It comes from the citizens. And that gets left out of the equation all of the time. This is the other point as well. that If you're going to create – listen, I believe in free school meals for children when they're at school, especially if their parents can't afford it. Um, But when when you have a child, then obviously what we're looking to be able to achieve here is the parents have some responsibility for actually feeding their own children. Now, I accept that if single mothers and there's situations where that cannot possibly happen. But what I'm trying to say is that when you look at what's being said here about – where the problem is around food prices going up, I actually don't think it comes anywhere near the farmer. The problem is with the way that it's been marketed and those costs have been distributed. And uh, food should be relatively uh, inexpensive, but you need to pay for quality. And, you know, I'm about to tell you, and I'm sure Andrew knows this, there's been an outbreak of salmonella here in the UK in eggs in the last week. Now, again, we're supposed to have these amazing um, food standards all the farmers have to attribute to, and yet they're now warning us that a batch of, um, of eggs have been contaminated by salmonella. And it's okay, the public, they, they've found it, so there's a really good traceability. The only problem is you're going to have to check every egg's number, if it's got a number on it, to see whether it's one of the eggs that might be contaminated. Yeah, I have to go. This first half of Royal Route is over with Andrew times two. We have another half waiting ahead of us. The stand at Paxton County brings to light the challenge in animal ownership, particularly from an animal rights standpoint. How many animal rights activists continue to increase the cost of food unnecessarily? That's actually what brought Diane Sullivan into the mix. The stand at Paxton County on Netflix brings all of that to light. Watch it. Let me know what you think. We'll be back for the second half of Royal Route right after this. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Luce, alongside Andrew Henderson and Meredith and Lisa LaPlace, who has an outstanding... Well, she agrees with Andrew, so never mind. Forget that comment. <laughs> <laughs> the elasticity of demand and our supply and demand with farmers and ranchers is a driving factor. You know, that is spot on. And so many times in agriculture, we tend to forget that. Uh, for example, we just, we, U.S. farmers love planting corn, maize, for those of you in the U.K. And it doesn't matter what the demand is. It doesn't matter what the oversupply or the uh, carryover is. We just want to plant more corn. We can't do that. We have to figure out where the demand is going to be because, I mean, I can tell you where all of the corn goes in the United States. A third of it goes into ethanol. A third of it goes into livestock production. About 20% is exported. The rest goes into food food products, high fructose corn syrup and things like that. If your livestock or your ethanol decreases in demand, you better produce less corn. And that applies also to pig producers. It doesn't matter, Andrew Meredith, what, what, what factor or what commodity we're talking about. You have to produce what there's a demand for. That's correct. And I was in a really interesting discussion yesterday uh, with one of our dairy uh, organizations. They were hosting a seminar on what does it mean to be productive and what is productivity? And uh, one of the contributors made the point that for too long, many to many farmers, productivity is simply increasing output without really any appreciation of the end market. I know that's a subject very close to Andrew H's uh, heart. 
And, you know, we need to have a broader think as farmers and food producers about, you know, the best way to distribute uh, or to run our business, run our businesses and, uh, you know, make a profit for ourselves and, and not go supplying the market with something it doesn't need. Can't disagree with both of you. You're both right. Yeah, except I want to add a little caveat and that it's no secret that U.S. dairymen have been struggling. And uh, we see some uptick in that thanks to USMCA, the replacement of NAFTA. But, uh, you know, we have often argued, and, and this is a great discussion, while I believe in what I just said about supply and demand, the, the demand for fluid whole milk has been too low. And we have 80% of all teenage girls calcium deficient, 50% of all Americans vitamin D deficient. They don't understand the importance of drinking whole fluid vitamin D milk on a daily basis. So we can't just ex expect the demand to be there. We have to also build the demand. The dairy industry in the United States alone, including processors, has $365 million for checkoff, marketing, research, and development. Well, then, and we are inadequate in our fluid milk consumption. That needs but, to be fixed. But when Diane Sullivan sort of said that she doesn't drink soda, but that's can't be the truth when you talk about children in the United States of America because somebody's consuming it and you're the biggest consumers of soda in the world per capita. So what I'm saying to you is that if ch children drank more milk right. or fruit juice, then it, A, it would probably bring down the basket of all their food. It would increase, you get 75% of your, of, your, of your essential nutrients from one glass of milk a day. And I, I think the, Trent's right. The problem is consumption of dairy has been the consumption of dairy falling in the US, falling in the UK until now. Because Dairy UK, Mary, I don't know, Andrew, did you know this? have just announced a huge increase in consumption since the lockdown of dairy in the UK. In fact, the two major processes are trumpeting it. That's a good word to use today. And they are... They, and, and, I love how you're so proud of yourself. Accidentally, you said trumpeting it. Go ahead. I did. No, he had that written down hours ago. I, 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 I couldn't find a way to use trumpet to get in today's program. It makes, it, listen, if it makes Brian Moss go to the um, the voting booth today because he heard that name, that's just the way it happens. Subliminally, that, that yeah. was another. That was in the, the Joe Biden there. But there you go. So what I'm saying is that there is ways of improving consumption of dairy by good advice. And actually, the country that brought this problem to us in the sense that the Asian, the, the, the coronavirus originated from China, China's consumption of dairy is increasing, is increasing massively at the moment because of its protective properties. Just take that a step farther because China actually demanded their citizens triple milk consumption daily yeah. to help immunize themselves and protect their immune system, not immunize, but to build their immune system to ward off when you are developing that herd immunity. We haven't done in that in the United States. I never hear anybody say triple your whole milk consumption to help yourself against coronavirus. And by the way, if it helps you against coronavirus, what does it do for the common cold, which is still a bigger issue than coronavirus? Well, as you may know, vitamin D is a big factor in this, especially with the uh, with ethnic uh, communities as well, because their skin has less ability to absorb vitamin D, especially in our climate. 
it's nothing racist or it's just these are the things that we're being told are making a difference with how the virus affects individuals. So the nutrients from milk and dairy have become extremely important. And that's what I think is happening here in the UK. And contrary to what Andrew said before, and, I'm, and he implied that maybe we could get back to the days where we were throwing a bit of milk away, which I believe was mainly now due to logistical issues at the beginning of the pandemic. I think you agree with that, don't you, Andrew? Is that I right? Think it, certainly, it certainly played a role. Yeah, absolutely. I think the big problem we've got now as we go into lockdown two is we might actually get short of milk, especially on January the 1st if we can't import from the European Union because, as some of you know, at the moment we have no deal. Mm-hmm. So we, we import 30% of our dairy uh, requirement into the UK. You, from, you, you import between 30 and 40% of all food, correct? Yes. Yeah, we're a bit, you know, and, and that's, that, that, that is something that I've tried to say to people. If you think about that, that's quite worrying. Just imagine if you fell out with everybody. Right. Which yeah. you are. I have a big question. Do we need to take a break or can I pose it now? No, no, we have five minutes. Okay. Well, Trent, I just want to come back to the issue there. You're saying about uh, large swathes of the population sort of been deficient in nutrients. Um, as uh, a proud American, a fan of small government compared to us socialist Europeans over here on this side of the pond, what whose role do you think it is to uh, tell the population to change their dietary habits? Is it you know is it your producer organisations or is it the role of the government? And uh, just as one anecdote, um, in in history in in schools uh, where everyone's taught about how poor the population was in 1914 and when they wanted to raise an army for world war one they were shocked at the physical uh, condition of the sort of average british male when they were first doing conscription and i'm not suggesting we're anywhere near that stage yet you know there was genuine malnourishment then uh, on a scale that has not been seen for decades since but how you know should the government step in now to try and make people healthier or whose job is it do you think I, I never expect or want the government to step in and make people healthy. Um, if, in fact, we're relying on small government, which we don't have, we have a big government to tell people how to live a healthy lifestyle, we get an F. We have failed. You know, we, we have established this uh, dietary guidelines that every five years we get together and we reevaluate what we should be eating to be healthy. That's kind of like saying, hey, let's cut an hour off at the end of the day and put it on the beginning and think that we got a longer day. There is no difference in human health and nutrition today than it was in 1914. The problem in 1914 was access. You did not have refrigeration. You did not have the ability to store these nutrients for consumption 365 days a year. So it's just food safety. It's just food safety, isn't it, Trent? Right. Yeah, it is food safety. And, and the reason that 1914 was a challenge is because they just didn't have the ability to preserve food like we do today. Preservation was cutting a hole in a in a, a river or a creek somewhere, putting it in your icebox, or packing it in salt so that it didn't spoil. That was food preservation in 1914. Today we have no excuse. No, we know no. how we should be able to eat healthy foods, modern amount of every food group exercise more than you eat. 
Nutrition's no different than it was when my grandfather, Calvin J. Luce, was born in 1918. Interestingly, in 1921, and I learned this because our oldest daughter is a registered dietitian, she said, Dad, go look at the advice from the government to prevent diabetes in 1921. The cure for diabetes from the government and the medical community in 1921 in the United States, I can find you in the National Institutes of Health, the directives, it says, eat a high-fat, high-protein diet, and that will prevent diabetes. Well, they went away from that because we had pharmaceutical companies develop insulin and medical reasons or, or mechanisms of dealing with diabetes. And so we consequently lost track of what the real health and uh, health and diet objective was in the, in the 20s when we didn't have all of these conveniences. We just need to get back to the basics. And I think that the commodity groups and the producers individually need to be the loudest sounding board for making that happen. If we rely on the government to make it happen, we're going to continually be frustrated with the confusion. Andrew, uh, you know, from your socialist point of view that you just described, living, 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 living just outside Europe, I might add. Yeah, just just living just outside the European Union. What's your own personal view of that? Well, you know, you make a, a very fair point there about you know the big business. Uh, when any any business sector and any business gets too powerful, you know, like you, that that was part of the problem. And I, is it enough to have engaged citizens then? to advocate on behalf of consumers or is there a role for the state then I would say if there's a clear problem then you know regulation has to be part of it if if you know if businesses through their profit making activities are actively making the population less healthy that can't be good for the security and safety of the nation as a whole can it I, I would change your um, your statement into less healthy and government partnering with corporations make people more dependent on the government and the entity that's selling something. But I have to go to a break, and then Andrew Henderson will pick it up. Neogen is creating the opportunity to be a part of efficient food production. You know, back in the 1920s when my grandfather started producing food, he was just shotgunning it. He tried this genetic on that genetic. Today, we look at the genomics that are present in the livestock. Even people with pets are looking at their genomics because they want to know, is there any Scottish blood in my wimmerang? Whatever dog you might have. That was a Mr. Biden moment there, wasn't it? (laughs) There you go. Get details about looking at your your chickens, your goats, your sheep, your pigs, your cattle, whatever the case may be. Look at your genetic future. Neogen.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with the last segment of Roll Route after this. No references to Biden. Welcome back. Roll Route. Andrew Meredith. There is one habitual offender of the only rule. On a roll out, have you noticed who it is? Well, I'm not the going to just sit there and stare at you for two minutes. Or yes, you are. Or you can talk about the weather. Or you can talk about something useless like Liverpool football. Or you no, do something, just don't talk about the topic. So anyway, I'm going to talk about the topic now. <laughs> I, I think the way I think the way I think there is a way that neither of you have suggested, and that is through proper um, 
legal uh, representation around advertising. What I mean by that is yesterday I was watching a Renault advert for one of their new motor cars that said that this motor car, this new electric motor car, was carbon neutral. And I thought, hmm, I'd, I'd love to know who and what organisation they've proved that with. Right. But really, I think when people make those sort of claims, because first of all, was the electricity that it used carbon neutral? I doubt it. That's the starting point. Were all the parts produced, that the metal that came from some forging plant somewhere, was that energy carbon neutral? And I was thinking we should not allow adverts that are totally, they should just be banned. There should be some way of only allowing people to make proper claims about products on TV or on the radio. And my question, when you, when you start talking about restriction, carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere, who's going to take responsibility for the starving plants? <laughs> okay. Trent. That's plant, that's plant food. Trent, I, you cannot, you, you supersede nature too many ways and you're going to disrupt the cycle, period. But you're not, you, you, you're deflecting the argument there because it, it could have been anything I was arguing about. It could have been saying that this is, this phone here is, uh, is, is going to be good for my sex life. Okay. It may well be, it may well be not, but can you prove it? That's the thing I'm saying. Because when you advertise something, from now on, I think you should have, if you're going to make, uh, if you're going to make claims. Who's going to do that? Well. It's got to come back to the consumer. You can't have some governing body because there's somebody going to be paid off and there's somebody's going to be sliding through while uh, somebody else is getting penalized. The people got to be smarter. Quit falling prey to stupid campaigns. There's no such thing as almond milk. It's almond juice that they put calcium in. Do your research. Critical thinking. Teach it everywhere. Maybe that's the only thing the state should do. Good education. Well, good let ed- everyone free. Look, effectively, it's the same thing. No. But I'm gonna, I'm not no. I, I don't want the state involved in education either. Since the Department of Education started under Jimmy Carter in the United States, education has gone in the toilet. We now have people in the UK smarter than we are. That's ridiculous. Oh, it's always been the case. At least two. At least two. <laughs> well, not really, because you weren't smart enough to win that little battle in 1776. Oh, my goodness. It always comes hey, we're, we're, we're playing the long game here. I hear yeah, we've got a cousin in East Sussex. So, you know, we're going to have a hotline to the White House. Maybe. 24 hours from now. Hey, it's proven. When hey, Biden's in the White House, everybody has a hotline to the White House. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I'm saying. At least tomorrow, we'll still be independent UK. You might be part of the People's Republic of the whole world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a shut-your-mouth point of view there, really. Isn't yeah, it, but really? seriously, I, I mean, I'm just going to use a, a little bitty example that seems like nothing, and yet, Andrew, I talked about it the other day. President Donald Trump spoke in Nebraska last week. 29,000 people showed up. He started speaking at like 8.15, all right? The next day, the only thing major media could say negative about it was, and people had a hard time getting back to their cars, and he stranded them, and they had hypothermia. First of all, it's 32 degrees in Nebraska. Nobody in Nebraska 
gets cold at 32 degrees. We're Nebraskans. We deal with that. We go to football games when it's 10 below and we find out how to get home. But yet this thought process is somebody's got to take care of me and getting home. I don't need somebody to take care of me. I can be a critical thinker about who's trying to sell me what and say, you know, that doesn't pass the stink test. It stinks. We need more critical thinking. I'm, I'm disappointed in your media because that would have been a really good opportunity for them to call Trent Loose a super spreader. Okay. Oh, what's he spreading there? Well, yeah. The good news. <laughs> Tr- spreading the truth. <laughs> that seems to be the whole thing at the moment. That you know, if you wear a mask, then you're God's gift to man. It just doesn't. I, it doesn't add up to me. But there you go. Yeah, and yet the science. You brought up a great point. You go into a, a grocery store or a gas station today in the United States, in certain states, and without a mask, and they look at you like you're death warmed over. <laughs> and the science, there is no science that says CDC even admits 85% of the people who get coronavirus were wearing a mask. Mm. But what's it about? A bunch Are you of sure sheep- it was the mask. Oh, you but, know the thing. You know the thing, Trent. Yeah. Oh, I have I mean, a mask. It was like man. me to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying they may have been looking at you funny because you've been working with the livestock all day. You know, it yeah. might not have been the mask. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you smell. Maybe yeah. you smell. Spoken by two guys from the UK, where the men are men and the sheep are scared. <laughs> 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 very good, very good. All right, uh, Andrew, we're uh, almost halfway through. We are right at halfway through. From the farmer's perspective, going forward, um, you seem to be kind of optimistic about what this new phase of a lockdown is going to mean for the UK farmer. Yes, I am, uh, broadly. Uh, I, you know, I think meat sales in particular, as we discussed uh, here before, have been tremendous for the British farmer through lockdown. That greater proportion of total meat sales going through the major retailers. They've got the commitment to only source British product. So there's been less spent on imported meat in restaurants. You know, in the short term, there will be benefits. We had new data this week on how sales of British lamb have been absolutely tremendous uh, through uh, July, August, September, uh, up 11% on the year in total consumption. Uh, the price is still above £2 a kilo, which is unheard of for October. And beef, you know, it's dropped back a little bit from its high. You know, where there was talk that it was going to be sort of a four pound a kilo dead weight by by autumn. You know, it's it's more like three eighty. But um, uh, uh, the average farmer, the average beef and sheep farmer, is is not losing money at those prices. They're pretty happy. Uh, we're getting they're getting their subsidy payment this winter like normal. Uh, all eyes are now turning more to the medium and long term. Uh, with you know trade deals as you touched on earlier and the sort of long term what are these environmental schemes that are going to replace the subsidy payments going to look like that those are the concerns short term things are pretty good at the moment the real question is how long should the tails the sheep be the tail on the sheep be when it's docked uh you should still be able to see a little bit below your fist why yeah well any shorter and you know Particularly if it's a lady, it ain't covering all those lady bits. 
It's a matter of, of embarrassment of covering the lady bits. <laughs> I know. I just need for comfort. You know, you want to sweep it a little Wait, bit. You, no, I, no, I don't know <laughs> that. I don't know that that's the right length for comfort of a sheep because blowflies get under there. Cut I the thing them. off. Come on, Albert Einstein, no. and tell us what it needs to be then. Cut it off so that it does, it provides no opportunity for parasites to get in there and hide and cause problems. Well, you know, I thought Cover they had the lady parts. It's the it's That's the hard winters of, in Mid Wales too. You guys in Nebraska, you, you don't know about hard winters. They are. They need a nice warm tail. They're sheep. We take their fur, <laughs> their wool, and make other people warm. They don't need to have lady parts covered to be warm. <laughs> and, and furthermore, you don't ever get below thirty-two degrees. <laughs> Um, That's pretty cold. Do you do that with horses as well, then? Do we dock their tails? Yeah. No, not with horses. Why not? not? Horses have no parasitic issues around the tail region. I didn't know that. I'm glad I asked that question. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah. Being a a dairy nutritionist, I didn't didn't know that. If you're so infested with parasites in your sheep, though, we'd be delighted to export some high-quality meat instead. Maybe it's not a very good place to raise sheep. Yeah. Uh, uh, look, we are not good lamb producers. We import lion's share of the lamb that we produce. We import 65% of the goat meat that we consume in the United States. So, yes, we are open to lamb. Although Trent Thorne and his friends in Australia would want to have a conversation with you because they are, we are very good customers of New Zealand and Australia. Well, we, we, just on that subject, though, when you look at um, – it's very, very important that we, I do think one area we can supply you with is lamb. For some I agree. Of your, for some of your, for some of your better cuts of beef. There you go. Yeah. All right. One minute. Where's where's our wrap up here? Well, who, wants, who wants to trumpet the challenge to go forward? I haven't been on for a few weeks. Have you discussed the fact that the the first shipment of UK beef has now landed on your shores? I don't know where it went to. I, I did briefly speak, and I, it, I got shut down very quickly. When uh, I no, you didn't get shut down. You said we, we are very big ground beef consumers. We welcome all of your minced meat to contribute to our ground beef system. <laughs> That's all you can do. Uh, uh, the, only thing is, the only thing is, Andrew Meredith, um, uh, in 24 hours' time, we'll know whether all this talking has been worth anything at all. Yeah. Because if... Um, if uh, if Joe Biden gets in, I think the trade discussion is going to, to change quite dramatically, frankly. And let's hope that from a British point of view, I'm just saying from my point of view, that doesn't happen. So everyone should vote for Davy Crockett, right? That's who I cast my ballot for. <laughs> uh, we did not know you were a Democrat, but now we do, Andrew. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Uh, second person this week suggested that I get Jim Collins on. Thank you, Roy. I'll be getting Jim Collins on. And Diane brings up a great point. You know, we talk about wonderful lamb, but quite frankly, it is the highest protein source you can find when you go to the grocery store. From a price point of view. For, from, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We, it's we, can, a luxury. We, can, we can help you with that. Yeah. And, and I think really at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make sure that the essential nutrients that are very uh, nutrient dense, like beef and lamb, they should not be a luxury. They should be made available to all people in a, in an abundant kind of a way and get the farmer paid properly. Therein lies the problem. Andrew Meredith, it's always a pleasure. Andrew Henderson, the same. No matter what I try to say. 
Andrew Henderson, you get the last word. Been a thoroughly enjoyable discussion, and um, we all want the same thing. We want our farmers to prosper, and we want the people that consume our products to prosper as well. And that's the key. Health, uh, right the way through from farm to fork, is so so important. And um, good luck, everyone. Good luck, America. Good luck, America. A little luck is always welcomed. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. Both Andrews and myself remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route.